Good morning. How are you this morning? Good. I am blessed as well. Open your Bibles, please, to Exodus 18, Exodus chapter 18, where, interestingly enough, we join in the story of Israel on her broken road leading straight to God. Maybe we can relate this morning. I'll begin reading at verse 1, Exodus 18. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and his wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought, about, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws, and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, 
The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. What we have here in chapter 18 of Exodus is a rather curious chapter. Wedged as it is between the spectacular accounts of the Amalekite battle on the one hand and what's to come at Mount Sinai on the other, the author almost seems to place this relatively calm and peaceful and benign story right here so maybe we can even catch our breath. Some scholars think the chapter's out of order and belongs after the events coming up at Mount Sinai. They look at things, look at things like in verse 5, that phrase, near the mountain of God, could just as easily be translated at the mountain of God. And there is this mention not of a tent, where Jethro and Moses meet, but they go to the tent in verse 7, a possible reference to the tabernacle, which also comes later. And then there are two references made to God's decrees and laws in verses 16 and 20. And the only record we have of God giving Moses or Israel his decrees and laws are, of course, at Mount Sinai. So there's some question of where exactly the story belongs chronologically. But there it is in chapter 18, and whether it's there because it happened in this exact order or because God inspired the author or later editor to put it here for some reason, we're clearly meant to hear the story here, sandwiched between God's spectacular display of his power through the symbol of Moses' staff and the Amalekites and God showing up in spectacular fashion at Mount Sinai. Theologians point to two main themes, at least in chapter 18. One theme captured in verse 11 is this. The Lord is greater than all other gods, declared by a foreigner, no less. And then a second theme in verses 13 through 27 collectively Israel begins to organize her judicial system. This morning, however, I'd like to focus on another theme that runs throughout this chapter. In fact, it's a major refrain that runs throughout the Bible, including here in this rather curiously placed story in Exodus 18. And we talked about this theme a bit last week with the Amalekites. And that theme is the theme of community. Last week, we saw the community of God's people needs to care especially for those who struggle, for those who are in danger of being left behind, given the Amalekites attacking those lagging behind Israel's march across the desert. 
And now this week, God reminds his people they also need to care for everyone else, including in this chapter a special emphasis on those called to lead. And oh my goodness, speaking of leaders, Moses here, he's certainly come a long way, hasn't he? I mean, this is the man who at the burning bush kept repeating and saying to God, not me, not me, not me. This is the man who stepped back and let Aaron take the lead for the first three plagues in Egypt and God the next two before he, Moses, stepped up in plagues six through nine to be God's key instrument there. And so now this man, this not me, not me, burning bush man, suddenly accepts some much needed advice from his father-in-law. Because he's gone from not me and not me, now he's gone to it's just me. And so his father-in-law gives him the advice, son, get some help. You can't handle it alone. And the reason that Moses couldn't handle it alone, and the reason no one here this morning can handle it alone, the ultimate foundational reason none of us can handle life and its challenges alone is because God loves community. He didn't make us to handle it alone. We were never made that way. Even before sin entered the world, Adam was not made to handle it alone. God saw Adam alone, and God's brow furrowed, and he said, Not good. I can't quite declare everything very good, because man is alone. And it's not very good for man to be alone. We weren't made to handle it alone. We were made for community, because God loves community. God loves some strange things sometimes, doesn't he? I mean, community, but community is messy. And community is inefficient. And we even have at least one English saying or idiom that gives our culture's attitude sometimes toward community. We call it too many chefs in the kitchen. Community means putting up with all these other people. Community opens us up to being disappointed by other people, to getting hurt by other people because other people let us down. And God loves this. God loves community. God loves some strange things sometimes. But God emphasizes community in preparation for what's about to take place at Mount Sinai, something we'll look at much closer in the next two weeks. Hey, Israel, don't forget about the people in the back. They not only need you, you need them, God says in the story of the Amalekites. Hey, Moses, get some help because you can't do it alone, God says in Exodus 18. Hey, everybody, my people, we're all in this together. Some of you know, I never set out to become a pastor. I wanted to teach Bible, 
but the position of pastor wasn't even on my radar. And one reason, one reason I wasn't interested is because I knew and I had read about even more so many pastors who were burned up and burned out from trying to meet unbelievably high expectations. And frankly, I wanted no part of it. Anyone out there thinking of becoming a pastor? No one. Interesting. Well, if you are, consider these recent statistics as you mull it over. 48% of pastors think their work is hazardous to their family well-being. 46% will experience a burnout or a depression that will make them leave their jobs. 70% say their self-esteem is lower now than when they started their position. Then these next two in particular really grabbed my attention this past week. Pastors have the second highest divorce rate among professionals. And how about this one? For every 20 people who go into the pastorate, only one ends up retiring from the ministry. Of all pastors who had to leave their churches because of sexual misconduct, 75% indicated that they were lonely and isolated. And there are pages and pages and pages of similarly uplifting statistics. I read where the average length of stay now in ministry for a first-time pastor just starting out is about six years and shrinking before they leave never to try again. <sighs> Pray for your pastors, will you? Please continue to pray for me. And it's not just pastors. The statistics are equally daunting for youth leaders, choir directors, men's and women's directors, anybody, anybody that would take on the call and respond to the call for leadership in God's community. And the research indeed goes on to conclude that a leading reason for all of that is because of the unbelievably high expectations a church community puts on their leaders. And the number of pastors who fail and who list isolation and loneliness as a major factor is still growing. Hey, Moses, get some help. You can't handle it alone. Anybody want to be a pastor now? <laughs> well, obviously I changed my mind. I'm here. Yippee. And I love being your pastor. Seriously. Almost always. 
But the reason I decided to give it a try, so help me God, is that from the beginning, Wes Bowles told me, we won't ask you to do it alone. We don't want you to do it alone. We want to take a team approach to leadership. And the elders have remained faithful to that promise. Every once in a while, someone tries to slap me with the title senior pastor. And whenever I hear that, something inside me goes, ah! But why I gave pastor a try and why I'm still today very enthusiastic about being your pastor is because of the team of people that we have here in leadership. And it might be messier and less efficient sometime, but it's best. Hey, Moses, get some help. The work is too heavy. You can't handle it alone. That's God-loving community. And as challenging as that is, maybe it's not such a strange thing for God to love. If indeed it helps keep individuals from feeling isolated and alone and burning out. So community is more than worth the extra effort that comes in large part when other people let us down. And this goes way beyond pastors and even other church leaders. This touches and includes everyone here this morning in the church, each and every one of us. We tend to, as a culture, we tend to look at people's strengths and weaknesses, and we tend to want and even work toward everyone being strong in everything individually. And we make lists. Well, I'm good at this, this, and this. But I'm weak in these areas, so I need to improve on this, this, and this. And that's not a terrible model, but what might God have to say about that plan? What might he add? Maybe what God has in mind is having a community of strengths make up a strong and complete whole rather than any or all individuals being a strong and complete whole, each one of them. Or in other words, maybe we as individuals improve on this, this, and this by joining with others who are, who are already stronger or more gifted than we are in those areas. God loves community. And he includes everyone in his design for strong community. As Israel arrives at Sinai in the very next chapter, one of the very first things God says to Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. All of us are leaders in God's community. We're all to be priests. Peter picks up on this in 1 Peter 2 verse 5 where he says, we are all being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. John, in Revelation, addresses his letter to everyone in the church and calls them all a kingdom of priests. And then later in Revelation, John hears a song thundering from the throne room of God no, yet, no, no less. And the song that he hears being sung celebrates that the Lamb of God, Jesus, has made all the saints from every tribe and language and peoples and nations, John says, 
to be priests. Priests who not only serve God, John says, but who also reign over the entire world. God loves community, and he includes everyone in his design for strong community. He even includes kids. Did you know? And I'd add, he especially includes kids. The best biblical and historical evidence strongly suggests that every one of Jesus' disciples except Peter were teenagers. Jesus says of even younger kids than teens, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And then catch this, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these little children. What a declaration. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. But are they ready? We nervously ask. As a high school teacher, teens are especially near and dear to my heart. They have so much energy, so much passion, so many gifts to give. And yet churches everywhere are puzzling and puzzling over why the younger generations seem to be down on the church. Part of the reason seems to be that the church sometimes acts as if kids aren't needed or they're less important than adults. Someday, You'll be ready to take your place next to us in big church, but not yet. And I think that's a shame. This past week, I was reminded again of the important place children must play in the life of the church, even taking the lead at times. And I was reminded of this, of this, when I was invited to become a friend of West Bowles Community Church on Facebook. How many of you are familiar at all with Facebook? Yeah, wow. No wonder it's so popular. Well, one thing you can do on Facebook is create a page. And you're looking at a live Facebook page for our church on the screen right now. And then what happens is whoever creates the page invites other Facebook users to become friends of whoever the page is about, in this case, West Bowles Community Church. And so when I got the invitation by email from this page to become a friend of West Bowles Community Church on Facebook, I immediately thought, wow, this is cool. Our communications team must have decided to create a Facebook page for the church. What an awesome idea. So I clicked yes to become a friend of West Bowles. Figured I better. <laughs> and then I thought, you know what, next time I see John Burns, I'm going to have to thank him for putting this page together. It's really well done. Well, to make a long story short, John tells me he didn't do it. Didn't do the page. I thought he was kidding at first. A bunch of us did, but he insisted, no, he really didn't. So then... We thought, well, it's got to be someone else on staff. So we had our staff meeting the next day, and the, the question was asked, hey, who did this cool Facebook page? 
Everybody looking around at each other. Uh, not me, not me, not me. We don't know. And it became clear that no one on staff created the page or even knew who did. We had no idea who put it together. So then we got nervous. <laughs> Who's doing this? You know, who's putting our name out there to the world online saying God knows what? What are they putting on that page? What if they representing things about the church that aren't true? It's damaging, you know. Who's in charge of this thing? Shouldn't we be? And so on. So then our crack investigative team stepped up Largely Craig Nason and Ryan Long, I think. And they began calling people in the church. People have been here for a long time. People in the choir. People in leadership. But not on staff. Just calling around in the church. We thought we might have created that. Maybe you guys created this page. And one by one, everyone they called said, Nope, not me, not me. Hours later, that night, Ryan Long gives me a call. Todd, you're not going to believe it. He said, We found who made the Facebook page. And she's here this morning. And her name is Sarah Thompson. Come on up, Sarah. Man, are you in trouble now. (laughs) Sarah is behind the mystery of the Facebook page. She did it all herself. How old are you, Sarah? I'm 14. 14 years old. What grade are you in? I'm in 8th. And you put this together all on your own. Yes, yes, I did. And (laughs) why did you do it? Well, um, about a year ago, God called me to this church uh, through, most you know, Karis Grams. And ever since then, I wanted to become more a part of the church because you guys are awesome. And so um, I was on Facebook because I love Facebook, and I wanted to become a fan of the church, and there wasn't a page. That ticked me off. (laughs) So I was like, hey, I could do this. I could be a part of the church. And so I made it. And that's the story. Now, and yeah. (laughs) And you really didn't tell anybody about it until later? Uh, No, not really. No. And (laughs) what's the matter with you? Why didn't... It wouldn't have been as much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So um, after we we punish Sarah for freaking us all out, (laughs) no, we're not going to punish Sarah. Actually, we've asked Sarah if we can come alongside her and help her to continue to administrate this page, give her information to put up. And she was very gracious. I I think you said yes. Yes, yes, I did. Good. And... um, Sarah, it, uh, it is. It, it's our honor and pleasure to come alongside you and help give you some more tools that you need to use clearly um, what God has gifted you to do. So thank you for having us, and thank you for taking the lead. Thank you. All right, give it up to Sarah Thompson. In one week, the West Bowles Community Church Facebook page had seven friends. Yesterday, we had 215 online friends of West Bowles. 
And this morning, before the first service, we had 244. And then between services, three more joined, 247. I wonder how many more will find a friendship with West Bulls because Sarah Thompson took the lead. Isn't that cool? See, yeah. So I was reminded that if Jesus could be in his father's house at age 12, then why not Sarah at age 14? And I think we need to continue to challenge ourselves to have our kids be involved more in the life of the church at its core and give them some real responsibility in the life of the church. It's their witness of the kingdom of heaven too. Oh yes, that kingdom of heaven that belongs to them. And maybe they're not the most experienced. And maybe their faith is young. But you know, sometimes inexperience and sometimes the exuberance of a new faith helps, you know? And we're all in this together, including our kids. God loves community, especially when it includes kids. Don't hinder them, Jesus says, for to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Well, if they can handle the kingdom of heaven, indeed, if it belongs to the likes of kids, Jesus says, well, maybe we can trust them with some things around West Bowles Community Church. And maybe we can all learn something from them, too, along the way, as we don't keep them away, but instead invite them in, ask us if they'll invite us in, and allow us to walk together with them. God loves community, and he includes everyone in his design for strong community. I don't care how young or old you are. There is a place for you at this church, so help us God, somewhere. As, one, as uh, 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us, where you participate will depend in large part on where God has gifted you. And maybe we can help discover that together. Sarah's obviously gifted in this area. And remember, no individual is gifted at everything, and I'm not so sure any one person should be because God loves community. But somewhere there's a place for you here to participate in community, so help us God. Moses needed help because even he couldn't handle it alone. We all need help because we can't handle it alone. And maybe that's why God loves community so much. As messy as it often is, as hard as it often turns out to be, this working with other people, we need it. Nonetheless, because we simply can't handle it alone. In a few minutes, we'll participate together in a time of community around the Lord's table. It's called communion because of its community emphasis with God and with other believers. And around the Lord's table, we're reminded of Jesus last night before he was crucified. And you know, God's love of community, Jesus' love of community, shines through even his darkest hours. Jesus goes to Gethsemane to pray. His disciples keep falling asleep even after he asks them over and over to keep watch with him. And Jesus doesn't get angry or frustrated with them. He just keeps waking them up. 
inviting them again and again to community with him, to watch with me, he says. And then even after they keep letting him down, even after he's poured out his heart to God and sees with sudden shocking awareness, the Bible says, the horror of what's now upon him, its breadth and its depth, Jesus still nevertheless comes back to his groggy disciples and says to them, Hey guys, time to get moving again. Time to get up. And then he says, come, let's go. Come, let us go, Jesus says. And the deep irony is that he and he alone is strong in every single area. And yet... Even on the loneliest night of his life, even when facing something that he and he alone can do, Jesus is craving his community. Come. Come on, guys. Let's go. Come with me, please. God loves community. And soon after, even as the nails are being driven Through his hands, Jesus leans toward community still, even with those killing him. Father, forgive them, he says. And then while hanging, dying on the cross, Jesus offers community to a murderer hanging next to him. And of course, to each and every one of us. God loves community, and he includes everyone in his design for strong community. Hey, Moses, get some help. The work's too heavy. You can't handle it alone. You need community with me and with my people. Speaking of community... Let's gather around the Lord's table, shall we? As those coming to help come up, I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd wait until everyone is served, first the bread and then the juice, before you take it so we can take it all together in community this morning. In Bible times, temple practice and worship, temple practice and worship was at the hub and center of community life for the people of God. In Jesus' day, twice a day, every day, a temple priest would take select parts of the flesh of a sacrificial animal, would hold it up high in the temple courts for all God's people to see, would bless God for the gift of this animal, and then the priest would say in a loud voice, This is the flesh of the people offered to God, reminding him of his promise to be merciful and forgiving and to save us. It's in that context, a context the disciples no doubt knew very well, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took some bread, 
blessed God for it. And then he said, this is my body, my flesh given for you. Echoing something they were used to being a part of a hub and center of their community. It's my body. It's my flesh given for you. Take it, he said. Eat it, he said. Do this to remember me. As we wait for the body to be passed out, just invite you into a time of prayer and reflection before we take communion together. And there is a river that washes For all of your tears All the wages The things you've done All of those nights Spent alone In the darkness of your mind of Jesus broken for you. In Jesus' day, when a man proposed marriage to his bride, it was customary for the young man to offer his bride a cup symbolizing his life. And to say to her as he offered the cup, this is my life. I'm offering it to you. And then if she accepted the cup, there'd be a party. Because it was her way of saying in symbol, yes, 
I accept the offer of your life. I will marry you. And so on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a cup, blessed God for it, and I imagine much to the surprise of his disciples, Jesus echoed yet another powerful picture of community, marriage. And he said, This is my blood of the covenant poured out for you and for many. Drink from it, all of you, he said. And in a way, Jesus is asking, Here's my life. In marriage, will you become one with me? If so, take it and drink it. Again, as we wait, we invite you to sing. Pray. There is a river that washes me. There is a tree.
Take, drink, remember and believe the blood of Jesus shed for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending us your son and for allowing the unspeakable, for allowing your only son to be broken and allowing his blood to be shed all so that we could be in perfect community with you and our brothers and sisters in Christ forever. We praise your name, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we close this morning, singing the words that generations of followers have sung. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. It goes like this. Christ has died and Christ is risen. Christ will come Celebrate his death and rising. Lift your eyes, proclaim his coming. Celebrate his death and rising. Lift your eyes, lift your eyes. Just like that. Celebrate his death and rising. Lift your eyes, proclaim his coming. God's benediction this morning, his blessing, his good words from the last prayer that we know he prayed before he was arrested and crucified. You wonder if Jesus is into community and loves community. Listen to what he prays to God. He says to his Father, My prayer is not for my disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also 
be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me. Oh, Father, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.